This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Kathleen Schmaler, who's a professor in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine here at MD Anderson Cancer Center. We're obviously extremely proud to have this uh, manuscript as our lead article in the October issue of the journal. This is the manuscript describing the findings of the CONSERVE trial. The title is CONSERVE, a prospective trial of conservative surgery for low-risk early-stage cervical cancer. Kathleen, welcome and thank you so much. Hi, Pedro. Thank you for having me today. My God, congratulations once again. I, I think I have said so many congratulations already for completing this study. Uh, and, and I know that obviously it's been quite an amazing journey. So we're obviously extremely proud to publish it in, in our journal. And, uh, and to, to that end, of course, obviously we, we have uh, lots of uh, points to, to discuss in the podcast. Um, so I wanted to start off first by just asking you if you can just tell our audience as to what was the genesis of, uh, of this landmark study? Uh, what was the rationale for asking uh, this question, which obviously when it was initially proposed, this was a, a significant deviation from the, from the standard of care. So I uh, wanted to hear from you with regards to what was, what was the reason for doing this study? Yeah, we were interested in looking at whether or not uh, early stage cervical cancer needed such a radical approach either with a radical hysterectomy uh, for women who didn't desire future fertility or radical trachelectomy for those uh, who did desire future fertility. Um, and around that time, there had been several retrospective studies that had been published, including one um, at MD Anderson by Dr. Michael Fromovitz. Um, and all these studies had shown that when they looked at, looked back retrospectively at the um, radical hysterectomy specimens from women who had low risk cervical cancer, that less than 1% actually had parametrial invasion. And so that led us to ask, do we really need to be removing the parametria in all these uh, patients with early stage disease? And could we save them from the complications of radical surgery? And then another um, issue is that cervical cancer is far more common um, in lower resource settings and in low and middle income countries. And those are the countries with the least number of uh, trained GYN oncology specialists who can do these radical surgeries. Uh, so that led us to ask, could we do um, less and do more conservative surgery in this patient population? Yeah. And, and of course, obviously, that was a, a, a very brave question at that time. And I, and I remember some of the arguments around that proposal as well. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the questions that uh, may come up, uh, obviously, is uh, this was a, a feasibility of conservative surgery. And some might argue or ask, uh, you know, why did you decide to proceed as a feasibility uh, study rather than a full on course prospective randomized study? Well, at the at the time that we um, you know start, thought about the study and and designed it, it was two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, and obviously a randomized controlled trial would be the um, uh, the best study we could do. But you know we really had very limited resources um, to be able to do a, a big study like this. It was a very new concept, um, and so we felt like before we could embark on a 
a randomized trial that we needed to get some initial some initial data um, and thought we would start with the single arm trial um, with the idea of potentially then if, if we showed feasibility to move on to a, a randomized trial. But, you know, looking back, it would have been great to start it as a randomized um, trial. I was fresh out of fellowship, a, a year or two out of fellowship, um, bringing this incredibly um, uh, <laughs> rogue, drastic concept to uh, to the faculty at MD Anderson and, and others, along with, you know, obviously with the, the support and mentorship of you and Michael and others. Um, but really, we, we had planned sort of to just start with a, a small feasibility study. Great. And um, and then what what would you say today uh, is considered the, the standard of care uh, on the management of patients with early stage low risk cervical cancer? What what are the NCCN guidelines telling us how to manage these patients? So for women with uh, stage one A two disease, the who desire fertility. Um, and for 1B1 uh, disease who desire fertility, the, the standard treatment um, is still a radical trachelectomy uh, with a lymph node assessment. Um, the NCCN guidelines now also offer as an option uh, for women with stage 1A2 disease with very low risk features to consider uh, that you can consider uh, cervical colonization and lymph node assessment. Um, and then for those who don't desire fertility, the um, standard treatment and the NCCN guidelines recommend um, a radical hysterectomy with lymph node assessment, or if the patient's not a surgical candidate, to treat them with with radiation therapy. Great. And and obviously, we mention and, and often uh, we, we talk about this and we discuss this in, in group meetings and in conferences. Um, what is the definition of a low risk cervical cancer patient? Uh, so I don't know that there's a universal definition, um, and it differs a little bit um, from publication to publication, um, but it's early stage disease, stage 1A2 or 1B1 disease, uh, tumor less than or equal to two centimeters, um, less than equal to or less than or equal to 10 millimeters of depth of invasion. Um, Usually, uh, histology is considered um, squamous cell or adenocarcinoma, although some will consider adenosquamous also as low risk. Um, and then lymphovascular space invasion or LVSI um, is a little more controversial in whether, you know, we can, that, that you, the absence of that is required to consider a cervical cancer low risk. Yeah. So then now let's get into the some of the details of, of the study. And obviously uh, a monumental effort pulling in so many institutions from so many different places around the world uh, obviously speaks to your leadership and your recognition within the field. Um, how many centers and how many countries participated in this study? So in the end, we ended up having 14 centers from nine countries. Um, and those countries were the U.S., Colombia, Brazil, Peru, Mexico, Argentina, Australia, Thailand, and Italy. So primarily in, in Latin America, but really spanning the globe. Um, and we didn't start with um, this many centers. Actually, when the trial started, it was um, our group at MD Anderson, um, along with Rene Pareja in, in Colombia. Um, and, and 
that was sort of how, what we started with the study. And then um, just, you know, we realized that given our strict inclusion criteria that we need many um, partners um, and other institutions to join us. And then kind of one by one, um, we, we added several. As you can imagine, because it's a prospective study um, that was led, you know, at MD Anderson, the... Um, Everyone had to submit uh, to their IRB or ethics board. Um, every amendment had to go through all these sites. Um, and, you know, just based on the countries, how many different languages everything had to be translated into. Um, and, and these were partners through our sister institution network at MD Anderson. Some were just friends and colleagues that um, we had worked with over the years. And um, it really formed a, a, a terrific, terrific network of colleagues and friends to, to join together to do this study. Yeah, and you did an amazing job. So con congratulations on, on doing so. Um, you mentioned the strict criteria for eligibility. Um, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about who was eligible for this study And I, if you could also elaborate as to what amendments were made to the study during the study as it pertains to these criteria. Sure. So when we um, initially designed and opened the study, the inclusion criteria um, included uh, uh, stage 1A2 or 1B1 disease using the FIGO 2009 criteria. Um, the histology had to be either squamous cell Um, any grade or adenocarcinoma, only grade one or grade two, um, grade three adenocarcinoma uh, was excluded. The tumors had to be two centimeters or less in size, and that was based on physical exam and or imaging. So if anything showed it uh, to be greater than two centimeters, the patient was not eligible. They could not have, uh, the tumor could not have lymphovascular space invasion, And then patients had to have negative imaging for metastatic disease. And that could be done by CT, MRI, or PET based on what was available um, at each institution. Um, as, um, you know, as the study progressed, um, we did add two additional criteria. And that was based on uh, a patient who had a recurrence. But we added um, depth of invasion had to be less than or equal to 10 millimeters. Um, and also that the cone biopsy had to have negative margins, not just for cancer, that was always included, but we added on that the margin had to, margins had to be negative for CIN23 um, or adenocarcinoma in situ, so essentially any high-grade dysplasia. Yeah, and, and if you can tell us a little bit about the study design, um, particularly highlighting the, the two treatment options that, that patients had based on their wish for future fertility? Sure. So the study was a prospective single-arm single study, um, and women actually could choose the procedure that they wanted based on whether or not they wanted fertility. So for those who wanted fertility, they had a cone biopsy performed, Um, and then if they met the, the criteria that, I, that we just discussed, um, then they could come on study and they underwent just a lymph node um, assessment. What's important to know is if on their colonization, their original one, and that could be a cold knife cone or a leap, 
if they didn't meet the criteria, like say they had um, positive margins, they were allowed to have one repeat cone to meet the criteria. Um, and so that group of women who won the fertility had the cone, potentially a second cone if needed, and then they underwent a, an additional operation where they actually had a lymph node assessment. Um, and that could be sentinel lymph nodes, sentinel lymph nodes plus a full lymphadenectomy or, or straight to a full lymphadenectomy. And then, so that was one arm, the, the women who wanted fertility. Uh, are one one option. The second option for women who did not want fertility was they still underwent that cone biopsy and had to meet all the inclusion criteria. Again, a second cone could be done. And then once they were eligible after the colonization, they then underwent a simple hysterectomy and lymph node assessment. And then we actually had a third group of patients, and these were patients who had already, you know, came to us having undergone a hysterectomy, uh, a simple hysterectomy. And this was a group of women who had undergone an, what we call an inadvertent hysterectomy, where it was un, not known that they had cancer ahead of time. And then after the hysterectomy, they had a postoperative diagnosis of cancer. So if their pathology met our inclusion criteria where the tumor, you know, had less than 10 millimeters of invasion, was less than two centimeters, no LVSI, and their margins were all negative, then they could enroll in the study and they underwent a second procedure where they had a lymphadenectomy performed. Great. So it was really three different groups of patients. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you also had an incorporation of a futility assessment in the study um, can you just briefly tell the audience about what that was about, the futility evaluation? Yes. Yeah, so when we started the study, as you know, we discussed earlier, it was really um, uh, different from the, the standard of care at that time. Um, so one of the requirements was that we had, um, you know, really looked at the safety of this and had some uh, stopping rules. So our futility assessment included assessing an immediate failure rate. Um, and what that means is um, measuring or, or um, evaluating how many patients in the arm that had the cone and then had a simple hysterectomy, how many of them actually had residual disease in that hysterectomy specimen after the cone. Um, and our, um, our futility assessment was that if greater, if there was a greater than 80% chance of an immediate failure rate greater than 3%, the study had to stop. Um, so this was designed by our statisticians. And then we actually added a second stopping rule, again, for safety, that if we had two or more patients recur um, in any of the three any of the, the three treatment options, um, that um, we would stop the study. So if two or more women recurred within two years of conservative surgery, then that would be a stopping rule and the conservative surgery would be deemed unsafe. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I recall certainly that many of these uh, were sort of mandates given the fact that this was such a, a deviation back then from what was considered uh, standard. So there, there, there was a lot of uh, sort of safety checks put into the, to the study. Now, Kathleen, w one of the questions that, that came from our uh, fellows uh, was uh, wondering whether you can explain a little bit to the audience, particularly uh, the junior faculty and, and trainees in the audience, 
um, the role of the data safety monitoring committee and, and, and how do they come into suggesting amendments to the, to the study? So the, the data and safety monitoring committee is an independent group uh, from the, the trial investigators and they monitor the, you know, the conduct of the trial and again, things like the feasibility and safety of it. Um, we're fortunate at MD Anderson that we actually have a data and safety monitoring committee and this protocol met the um, eligibility to be monitored by this group. Um, so it's an external group made up of um, physicians, researchers, and uh, statisticians. Um, and we had to report to them um, annually and then at some points every six months. And they would review the, the data to date, including whether or not what our enrollment was to make sure that we would even be able to finish the study. Um, and then they would also look at, you know, any um, adverse events and obviously any recurrences or, or women with residual disease. Um, they, every time we had a recurrence, um, the data safety monitoring committee was, was notified and we reassessed the, the protocol and the study. And, and one of the things that you looked at with regards to oncologic outcomes, and again, I mean, obviously it was a study about feasibility of conservative management, but of course, obviously everyone would be interested in the oncologic outcomes. You calculated a cumulative incidence of recurrence. At what time point was that? And, and uh, why did you decide on that time point? We looked at uh, recurrence rates at two years, um, and that was just based on most of the women with um, early stage cervical cancer who are going to recur, recur in that two-year time frame. Uh, so that was the, the, the demarcation that we used um, and what we're reporting on. Um, but we are continuing to follow women um, for five years, so we'll, we'll have additional data as well. Fantastic. Um, just a couple more questions on the methodology. Um, some may ask and question, oh, why 100 patients? Where, where did the 100 patients uh, come from with regards to this study? So that was determined by our statisticians. And um, so the sample size of 100 was what uh, the number that was felt to be needed to assess the safety and feasibility. But again, we had those stopping rules throughout, so we didn't have to wait to get to 100 patients if it was deemed to be unsafe or, or not feasible prior to that. Great. And, and one last thing with regards to the methodology, and I think this is obviously extremely impressive that, that this was uh, achieved. Um, the element of central pathology review, not only of the cone specimens, but also when a hysterectomy was performed of the hysterectomy specimen, multi-institutional, multiple countries, what were some of the challenges that you faced in, in doing so? Uh, because certainly I know that there's many who look at, um, you know, the question of central pathology review when trying to put together a prospective uh, trial and, and certainly uh, often underestimating the challenges that may come up with that. Yeah, there were definitely several uh, challenges. Um, so what we did for each site was we, whatever, you know, whether it was FedEx or, um, you know, any of the, the shipping companies that they had locally, we worked with them 
and had, you know, an account, our account that they could use. So as soon as the blocks were ready by the local pathologists, um, they were put into the envelope and shipped to us in, in Houston and then read, um, you know, within a day or two, usually by our, our very dedicated pathologist, Dr. Ramalingam. Um, and then, you know, it was determined whether or not the patient could go on study. This was when we looked at the cones. And then again, once they had their next surgery, um, it had to be sent. So if you think about it, each site for each of their patients had to, had to send us things more than once, sometimes, you know, up to um, three or four times, depending on the, the procedures that were done. Um, and then we had an amazing, amazing team of research coordinators um, at MD Anderson and then at each of the sites. And so they really did all the incredible work of, okay, we're going to the OR tomorrow. The slides will be read by our pathologist there and then shipped to you. Um, surprisingly, we had um, very little trouble actually with slides getting lost mm -hmm. um, or not getting through customs. Although we did have a few instances. <laughs> we had one case in Thailand where the FedEx package actually opened and the those slides of the blocks had fallen out and then had to be recut. But mm. um, um, it was really, uh, it was actually very, very impressive, but it was a lot of work um, for our uh, research coordinators, but we were able to make it work. I think the, the other challenge, which was good, I mean, w we did a central pathology review because we were trying to be as conservative as, as possible and really make sure that the patients met the criteria. So the final, you know, there's 100 eligible patients in the study, but we actually had to enroll 140 to get to 100. Um, and 30 patients actually were not eligible after pathology review, um, you know, primarily due to the presence of LVSI not being noted by the local pathologist, but found by our pathologist. And then um, some changes either in um, the patient having a higher stage or more invasion, or we had a couple of times where the, um, when reviewed by our pathologist, it was felt to be a stage 1A, 1 tumor, or sometimes even pre-invasive disease. So it was, uh, it, it added a lot of work and coordination, but I think it was a very important, um, part of our methodology. Yeah. Extremely important. And congratulations for, for obviously maintaining that. Um, consistency in the pathology review. So obviously now to the results, the, the important findings from the CONSERVE trial. Um, tell us about the patient characteristics and the, the highlights, the main findings of the CONSERVE trial. So as we said, we had 100 patients. Our median age was 38, um, but our patients ranged from 23 to 67 years of age. 33% um, had stage 1A2 disease, and the majority, 67%, actually had stage 1B1 disease. Um, also, interestingly, is that we had 48% uh, of patients had squamous cell carcinoma, uh, and 52%, so a higher number, had adenocarcinoma. We had 44 women who desired future fertility and underwent cervical colonization followed by surgery for lymph node assessment. We had another 40, 40 patients who 
had a colonization and then went on to simple hysterectomy as they didn't desire future fertility. And then we had 16 women in the um, treatment arm where they had had an inadvertent hysterectomy with a postoperative diagnosis of cancer um, who then underwent a second surgery for lymph node dissection. Um, so that was our patient population. And then our findings, um, the first one that we were surprised by um, was that five of our patients, or 5%, had positive lymph nodes. Um, so those women were taken off study and, and underwent um, chemo radiation. Um, but there were five, even despite these very um, low risk uh, features, five had positive nodes. And then if you look at the um, group, uh, or then we had of the, the women who underwent a cone followed by simple hysterectomy, um, we had one patient or 2.5% who actually had residual disease in the cone specimen. Um, she was a patient who had a long history of adenocarcinoma in situ um, and then had had a, a cone in the past for that, um, then was diagnosed with invasive adenocarcinoma, had a cone with positive margins, underwent a second cone as allowed by the study, um, and then a hysterectomy. And in her hysterectomy specimen, she had a skip lesion and was noted to have uh, residual disease. It was very small. She didn't need any other treatment. Um, but again, you know, that's, you know, contributed to our immediate failure rate, although it didn't meet the threshold to stop the study. Um, and then for the rest of the study, the patients, so obviously those five patients with a positive node and the one patient with residual disease were um, taken off study because they, um, you know, no longer met the criteria. And when we looked at the remaining 94, we had um, three recurrences. Um, one in a patient who had a, a fertility sparing surgery, just a cone and nodes, um, we had no recurrences in the group that um, had uh, a cone followed by simple hysterectomy. And then the other two recurrences were among women who'd had an inadvertent hysterectomy followed by lymphadenectomy. So 12.5% in that group. So again, three recurrences, one in the group that had cone followed by nodes for fertility sparing, and two in the group that had inadvertent hysterectomy followed by a lymph node, uh, lymphadenectomy. Excellent. Um, so now, um, one question, and of course, obviously, this is of interest to me personally as well, but many will note the distribution of the surgical approach in these patients. Um, and I think one item that needs to be discussed is the, the approach as it pertains to minimally invasive surgery versus open surgery. So what was the breakdown and how do you think this might have an impact? Will it have an impact in terms of outcomes of the study? So interestingly, 96% of our patients, so 96 of the 100 actually had minimally invasive surgery. So 83 had laparoscopy and 13 had robotic surgery. The LAC trial um, was published during our um, last year of enrollment in the study. We then followed women for two years after after finishing enrollment. Um, and so the, the lack study didn't really impact our protocol. We didn't change our protocol because our enrollment was essentially complete by the time the, the results were, were you know, uh, published. Mm -hmm. 
So we didn't change anything. Um, we're almost lucky in that way because I think it would have really disrupted our study and mm. trying to figure out what to do at that point. Um, what's interesting is that in our group of, of women who did not want fertility, um, who had a cone, and again, that cone had negative margins, um, met all the criteria, and they then underwent a simple hysterectomy and uh, lymph node assessment, we had zero recurrences. Um, even though almost all of those were done minimally invasive. But when we look at our 16 patients who had the inadvertent hysterectomy with a postoperative diagnosis of cancer, so these are women where the tumor was not removed with their cone before undergoing surgery, we had two of 16 recur or 12.5%. Um, so we don't know if that was due to minimally invasive surgery or, or what the reason was. Um, but again, these, these two recurrences happened before the results of the LAC trial were available. And, and I remember actually talking with Dr. Coleman, who was um, still at MD Anderson at that time. And he said, there's something about this. Maybe it's something with the laparoscopy. <laughs> oh, who knows? But there's something not quite right. So he sort of had a premonition about what the results of the LAC trial were going to show. <laughs> um, I think our, our trial, obviously, that was not one of the questions we were looking at. So it's, it's hard to make any conclusions that I would say that um, the role of MIS in these very, very early stage um, cervical cancer patients who undergo a cone first um, is still unclear. But it, it was reassuring that in the group that had the, the cancer totally removed with a cone and then underwent a simple hysterectomy, we have not had any recurrences. Although in the group where um, they, you know, had an inadvertent simple hysterectomy, the, that we do have a high recurrence rate in that group of 12.5% or two of the 16. Yeah. And Kathleen, I think you alluded to a little bit earlier um, with regards to the lymph node assessment. And I think obviously now it's a different time period when that than when this study uh, was uh, initiated. Um, tell us a little bit about the lymph node assessment. I, I know that you, you mentioned previously the sort of like the three groups um, of lymph node evaluation in the study. The patients were enrolled, you know, from 2010 to, to 2019. So the standard of care of how we assess lymph nodes changed, um, you know, during that that time period, you know, even at MD Anderson, never mind all our, our other partnering sites. Um, so we gave, um, um, you know, the, the protocol was written that you could do whatever your standard was. So in 58% of our patients, they had just a full lymphadenectomy done. In 38%, um, they had sentinel lymph node biopsy as well as a full lymphadenectomy. And we were doing that for many years at MD Anderson while we were learning how to do sentinel lymph node biopsy and just to make sure we were truly getting the, the sentinel nodes. So that was a, a common practice during um, some years of the study. And then 4% had just a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And these were patients who were enrolled towards the end of end of the trial. Um, but again, you know, the, the use of sentinel lymph node biopsy was implemented at different points for different institutions. And some, you know, never adopted the uh, sentinel lymph node biopsy 
during that time period because of training equipment or just not their standard of care. Yeah. And now um, you mentioned obviously three patients recurred. Uh, and, and I was wondering, uh, were there any common themes among the, the three patients? Can you tell us a little bit more about, because, you know, when we look at this patient population, this is, you know, low risk as we consider the, the, the lowest risk possible. Um, what was it about these three patients that could have potentially, uh, you know, given us something to, to learn about? The first patient that recurred um, was actually a patient from MD Anderson. It was one of our very first patients. Um, and this was a patient who wanted future fertility. Um, we did a cold life cone um, on her and she had 13 millimeters of invasion. She had a squamous cell um, tumor um, and she had positive margins at that point. Um, so this was very early on. And as I said, we didn't include depth of invasion um, as, a, as an initial study criteria because it was a little bit controversial whether that mattered or not. Um, so anyway, we, we did a second cone on her um, per the study protocol, and it showed no additional cancer, but it did show CIN23, um, so high-grade dysplasia, and there was actually high-grade high dysplasia at the margins. Mm. Um, so we continued on. So she had her second cone. She was enrolled in the study um, because, again, at that point, we hadn't included display margins positive for dysplasia as an exclusion criteria. So she had a laparoscopic lymphadenectomy and had 50 negative nodes. Um, and then when she came back, actually, for her three-month follow-up, um, she had part of our, our uh, follow-up was to see patients every three months and to do a PAP. Um, and so her PAP showed high-grade uh, dysplasia. Um, and so we took her for... Um, uh, another uh, cone biopsy, and she actually had residual disease um, and went on to have a radical trachelectomy with positive margins and required a radical hysterectomy. Um, and then um, uh, actually uh, adjuvant radiation therapy. So when this happened, we actually paused the study because we said, wow, maybe this is definitely not what we should be doing. Um, but then we thought, well, we, we really probably should have been e even more careful in our inclusion criteria. So um, we talked to the DSMB and with others. And again, we hadn't met our stopping rules, but this really concerned all of us. Um, and then decided to add those two inclusion criteria of depth in, of invasion of less than 10 millimeters and um, that the cone margins had to be negative for high-grade dysplasia as well. Great. And then the two, the two other recurrences were actually patients who had had the, in, the inadvertent hysterectomy. One had a postoperative diagnosis of a grade 2 adenocarcinoma um, with 4.2 millimeters of invasion. Um, went back for surgery to have a lymphadenectomy, which were negative, and then actually at 11 months recurred, but the recurrence was in the pelvis and in the lungs, so not in the parametrium. And then the third one was a very similar case where she had a hysterectomy, was found to have uh, a squamous tumor with six millimeters of invasion, and then she recurred, um, I believe, 10 months later, with an in, in an inguinal node. Yeah, and and I think obviously the, the the consistent message is perhaps patients who undergo these inadvertent hysterectomies are not the the ideal candidates for 
for these uh, for these approaches. Um, Correct. Now, you you let's talk about complications. Uh, what what were the adverse events that were noted in the study? So we had two patients that had significant adverse events. One um, woman unfortunately died uh, 26 days after surgery, um, and it was believed to be secondary to um, uh, a pulmonary embolus. Um, And that was actually after a um, a laparoscopic lymph node dissection. Um, and then we had a second patient who, after her colonization, had significant bleeding, and it was 12 days post-op, and she actually required a um, uh, return to the OR um, to control the bleeding and some stitches placed. Um, but other than that, we didn't have any um, significant adverse events. Um, again, these are standard procedures that we do, and less radical than radical hysterectomy. So 2% complication rate, obviously very uh, consistently safe. So um, obviously we have to talk about pregnancies in the patients that maintain their fertility and, and noting that this was not obviously a, a objective of the study to specifically evaluate um, issues related to pregnancy. But how many patients attempted to get pregnant and, and how many succeeded? So we don't have the exact data on how many attempted, um, but we do know that 11 11 women of the 40 women who had fertility sparing um, treatment or 27.5% have become pregnant. So we have 11 women and 14 pregnancies. And then of the pregnancies, 13 delivered a term um, and one patient, unfortunately, had a fetal demise at, at 22 weeks. Yeah, so over 90% delivering a term, right? Very impressive. Um, you also had another component that was, I think, also very uh, impressive and, and visionary. Uh, you incorporated quality of life uh, into the study. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? And can, when can we expect the results on the data of quality of life? So the women completed surveys related to quality of life, sexual functioning, satisfaction with decision-making. And these surveys were administered prior to undergoing surgery. Mm -hmm. And then again at four time points. So three months, six months, 12 months, and 24 months after after surgery. So we're in the process now of um, analyzing all those data and hope but uh, to be able to publish them um, soon after um, after this. Great. And Kathleen, what would you highlight as some of the limitations of, of this study? So I think our biggest limitation is the prolonged study period. Again, it was almost nine years. Um, and there were many changes to the standard of care over this period, you know, specifically related to sentinel lymph node biopsy. Um, I think that obviously the trial took so long because of our very strict inclusion criteria, the requirement for central path review, and just a limited number of women meeting um, these strict criteria, and therefore, you know, having to to um, include many, many collaborating centers. Um, so I think that that's obviously the the long the long period, and then the pauses um, in the study. Um, you know, after review by the DSMB. Um, I think uh, another um, 
major limitation is that we did change those inclusion criteria partway through the study, obviously for safety reasons. Um, but that, you know, that, that obviously is not as, as, um, exact and clean as, as we would have liked. Yeah. And of course, obviously this is one of three really, uh, very important landmark studies, uh, really for conservative management of, uh, low risk, uh, cervical cancer. The other two, uh, we know the SHAPE trial, which is the, the prospective randomized trial, and GOG-278. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, these studies, and, and do you know where we are with regards to the, the, the status of those studies? So the SHAPE study um, is actually a randomized phase three study that's comparing Uh, simple hysterectomy with lymph node assessment to radical hysterectomy with lymph node assessment. So this will really be the gold standard um, for, you know, to, to answer the question for women not desiring future fertility. The accrual for that study is complete. Um, and now they're just, um, you know, monitoring the patients for, um, for recurrence. So I think we hope to have those results um, out next year sometime. Um, and then the other study, GOG-278, um, is very similar to our study in that it's a single arm uh, study where um, they're, they're following women prospectively um, in two groups. The first group being women who desire fertility um, preservation, who undergo a cone in nodes, and then those who don't, who undergo a simple hysterectomy in nodes. Um, and they are doing extensive Um, evaluation of um, functional outcomes of lymphedema, bladder, bowel, sexual function. So uh, there'll be a lot, a lot of data from that study on quality of life in addition to the oncologic outcomes. Fantastic, yes, and definitely looking forward to the results of those. So Kathleen, I just have a couple more questions. And obviously now the first of those uh, three important studies already completed and published Where do we go from here as it pertains to conservative management of patients with low-risk cervical cancer? What do we do as gynecologic oncologists as our standard now? So our results show that conservative surgery is, you know, safe in women with low-risk cervical cancer based on our, our inclusion criteria. Um, and I really think that these results should be considered and, and discussed with patients at this point and the, the you know, risks and benefits of, of conservative versus more radical surgery. Um, obviously, we're awaiting the, the results of SHAPE and um, GOG-278. I think these three trials together, um, you know, should the, the results uh, be similar, can really help to um, consider changing our standard of care and our guidelines. Um, I think that we, we cannot abandon doing a lymph node assessment, um, whether that's sentinel lymph nodes or a full lymphadenectomy, um, with a 5% positive lymph node rate. Um, I don't think that that can be abandoned in these low-risk these low risk patients, but I think that we, um, we've shown that it's safe and that we should consider doing conservative surgery. And again, that would be in patients who first have a cone that removes the cancer and has negative margins, um, and they meet all the other criteria, then they could either have just a lymph node assessment, um, if they desire fertility or simple hysterectomy with lymph node assessment. 
Um, again, for that group, as you said, the group that has an inadvertent simple hysterectomy, I don't think that given the high recurrence rate we saw in that group, I don't, uh, we would not advise that. Great. So now, Kathleen, obviously uh, you have uh, contributed so much to the care of women um, throughout the world. Uh, you have uh, had quite a global impact um, on women, um, particularly focusing on early detection and prevention of uh, cervical cancer, pre-invasive disease. And um, as a last question, in your introduction, you speak of the 2030 WHO initiative to eliminate cervical cancer as a global public health problem. Can you expand on this initiative and uh, what we can all do as clinicians to reach that goal? Well, as we all know, cervical cancer is a, a completely preventable disease. Um, and the World Health Organization has, uh, you know, made a call to action to, to eliminate the disease worldwide. Um, they have um, some very, very um, aggressive goals Um, and that is to vaccinate 90% of girls around the world uh, against HPV. Um, obviously, we include boys as well in the U.S. and in other high-resource countries. Um, but as far as cervical cancer is concerned, that's, uh, um, you know, really the, the goal is to have 90% of girls vaccinated. Um, the second goal is to screen 70% of women around the world um, with HPV or another um, a very effective screening test. And then I think the third one is the hardest one is that when we find abnormalities on the screening that 90% of those women um, get, that, get um, treatment, ideally in the pre-invasive phase um, with a LEAP or, or cryotherapy or thermal ablation. Um, to prevent cancer from, from ever starting. Um, or if they have cancer, especially early stage disease, that they get treated for it. So, um, you know, these are, these are achievable goals, um, and we have all the tools that we need to do it. Um, I think the results of the CONSERVE study are especially helpful um, for low- and middle-income countries where the burden of cervical cancer is highest, But again, the region that ha the regions that have the um, lowest numbers of um, trained specialists to do gynecologic oncology surgery. So, if we're able to offer a um, a less radical, less complicated surgery, such as a simple hysterectomy in nodes or or colonization in nodes, it it will be really helpful in regions that have such a high rates of of cervical cancer. Kathleen, thank you so, so much for your time. I first personally, I want to say that it's been an honor to have uh, taken this journey with you uh, through all of these years of the CONSERVE trial. Um, we are all so extremely proud of you uh, and all the work that you have done. I want to thank you also for all the contributions that, as I mentioned previously, you have continued to make for so, so many women and so many trainees and so many junior faculty around the world. Um, thank you so much once again for submitting this manuscript to the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, and, uh, and thank you for your time during this podcast. Thank you. It, it's been a pleasure, and I, I just really want to 
send a thank you to all our collaborators um, around the world, both the the PIs, but but their whole teams who really made this possible, and um, as well to you and Michael and Rob and all the others at at MD Anderson who really. Um, uh, started this trial with me and and supported you know our team all the way through to to finish it. It's it's really a pleasure to have completed this this trial and to publish it in the international journal. Thank you.